So most professional wildlife photographers that I've come to know over the decades are self-taught. What I've found is to become successful, it's easier if you have a niche and a specialization. To do it well enough on a professional scale to make money at it requires a high-end portfolio. I chose that species when I started was it had a market for it. And if you can produce spectacular images of a whole life cycle, that's gonna stand out in the crowd. With elk in Colorado, you can shoot at 12,000 feet, you can shoot at 5,000 feet, so you're gonna get all kinds of habitats. You get the low-hanging fruit first. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, I'm joined by my talented hosts, Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and I'm Mark Raycroft, coming to you from Ontario, Canada. Michael's in Denver, Ron's in Wyoming, and as we often touch on, you know, weather in these different areas can be dramatically different. This is no exception this week. Ron, it's May, it's late May, and you're getting snow to the point that it's on your receiver and affecting internet a bit. It is affecting the internet connection. And it's, as the spring storms can be, it's the big flakes. So they interrupt anything that you're trying to do, including photography. But this one just happens to be setting up camp on my internet uh, satellite dish. So it is causing a few problems. It's not terribly cold. But the snow this late in May, it does happen. And I'm not going to whine about it because we'll take all the moisture we can get. But this storm system has stuck around for a few days, which is not common. Usually it's just hit and run. Yeah, it's been unusual spring weather-wise. Hot and cold. Mm -hmm. Same here. Unpredictable. Late spring. but So last week we did a podcast on doing building your portfolio on a budget close to home starting there and finding what you can in your vicinity, in your area to focus on. And we know from our experience, after all these years, there's so much you can find close to home. This week's podcast, we're going to spin off of that and add on to it in a way and talk about building a portfolio by focusing on a species, where we are each going to go back into archives and talk about a species that has been one of the most exciting and most what we're most passionate about over our careers and what we've built and why we've focused on these species. But before we get into that, let's get into our pro tips. Michael, what have you got cooking this week? Well, long so story. <laughs> this week, I, I was downloading images onto my uh, RAID array. And it's running super slow. And sometimes it does that. So sometimes I can restart my machine and it'll fire back up and we're good to go. This time it wasn't doing it. And I'm trying to pull some images for a job we were working on and it's just not working and not working. So of course you get on the internet and you start doing all the research. Well, I find out that one of the drives is most likely going bad in there and I need to replace it. So the cool thing about a RAID array is you can rebuild it, right? So if a, a drive does go bad, you have to pretty much put in an approved drive. You know, like the Drobo, you guys have heard of Drobo, right? Drobos will take any drive of any size and That's make it work. That's the housing brand, right? That's the frame. 
exactly. It's the frame, and it's pretty cool because you can just take a, a raw drive of any sort, you know, that is an internal drive, plug it in, and you're good to go. Well, this particular set, it only has approved drives, and I had to go find them. And this thing's a 2015. I had to find the receipt for it. So we are, what, 2009, four years, and it's already extinct. They don't really? support it anymore. All they could wow. tell me was is here are the drives that will work in that. You need to find one and replace it. In that process of doing that, and I don't, here's my pro tip. So long story into the pro tip. I, for some reason I was getting frustrated because I can't get to these images and I'm thinking, man, I, it would, how cool would it be to have cloud storage for all of your images? And maybe not all of your images, but if you guys do like I do, when you process images, if I go out and do a shoot, let's say we're shooting eagles like Ron and I just did. And I end up with 10,000 pictures. Well, I don't really need to save all 10,000 pictures, but I might have 500 that I like. And out of those 500, I might have 50 that I really like, right? But I'll keep all 500. But I don't want to fill up hard drive space, although I do. I never erase anything. I keep everything. But I really only need access to those 500. So I'm thinking, man, it would be really cool to be able to have something cloud storage-wise. And I'd heard... I don't know where I heard it. I know I heard it on some podcasts, but I kind of threw it in the back of my mind and forgot about it. But I resurrected that thought and I'm like, I'm going to try this. Did you guys know that if you have an Amazon Prime membership, you get unlimited storage for photos? Yep. Unlimited. So you it can is. store as many as you want. And it's all included with your Prime membership. Now, I could see him dropping the bomb on that, right? And just saying, okay, now we got you. Now that you have 100,000 images up there, now we're going to charge you. You know, who knows? But if you're diligent about your workflow and you can narrow down from that 10,000 to 500, that's not that many images to put up there. So if you figure you have, I don't even know what a good guess is. For me, it would be, 30 to 40 shoots a year. So 30 to 40 times 500. So you figure 20, what, 2,000? No, no. 500 images times, let's say, 10 shoots. That's 5,000 images. So you're going to end up with like 20,000 images. Mm -hmm. But in the last day and a half, I've already uploaded 50,000 images raw. What? Yeah. Any format. doesn't have to be a JPEG. No, I'm not, I'm not uploading the RAWs because I don't even want to deal with the JPEGs. I just want the RAWs. Up there. I just want them up there safe where I can get them. So once I, have the, once I had the account set up too, I use a couple of different phones because I fly the drones and the drones work with the phone. So I keep old phones around just for the flying the drone stuff. And one of them I actually keep internet service on just so that, or not internet, but it's, a, it's got a phone number too, so they both work. And if a phone goes down or if I happen to lose one, I got to back up when I'm traveling. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to plug in my phone in because they have a little app, right? So I download the app and I plug in my phone and it says, oh, do you want to back this up on your Amazon Prime too? So I backed up every image that's on my phone too. 100% backup. Then I was like, oh, well, since I'll try, since I did that on this phone, I'll try this other phone. And I did, it backed it up too. So I have all the phones backed up and 
I haven't got the hard drive fixed because I had to order a drive and they, you can't get them overnight. So my drives aren't going to show up to rebuild this, this RAID array till Friday. So I won't be able to get that taken care of right away. But at least I've got a new process where I can put selects up and then have access to them anytime, anywhere, anyplace, anyhow. That's my pro tip. Wow. Hold on, Ron, your mic is muted. How long did it take you? You said it was, uh, you're uploading RAWs, so obviously that's going to take a little bit longer, but with 50,000 images, how long did it take you to get them all up? Well, so that's the benefit of where I'm at right now is I have gigabit internet, so it's super fast internet. I can upload a three, let's say I upload a 500, no, let's say a, a gigabyte file to Vimeo, it'll take less than a minute. For a gigabyte hmm. now i'm not 100 sold on the amazon app because it really doesn't tell you its progress it does in the very beginning but then if you exit out of that and all that stuff's going on in the background i cannot find a way and it's probably me just not knowing how to run it yet but i can't go in right now like i'm uploading right now and i don't know where it's at i just have to go hit refresh and i see it change to you know a few more so it seems like it's taking a lot less time now and i don't know if they have the ability to throttle it back you know because i'm i'm basically using the last time i looked it was at 800 gigs <laughs> that i've uploaded right so wow. so this they must i mean if people take advantage of that the amount of space they must have for storage is baffling i guess and for free so just a matter of having this positive psychological relationship where if you have your stuff on Amazon Prime Cloud, you like Amazon Prime and it's worth that to them. Or like you said, they monetize it down the road, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And I think the majority of the people aren't like us, right? We, mm. they, you, they charge you for video space, but they don't charge you for stills. Because I thought, oh, now I can upload all those select red files that I have, I'll just put those up there too. But then it can recognize a red file or a video file. So it, I was able to buy a hundred gigs for $10 and you can buy one terabyte for video for 60 bucks. Annual. How's that work? Okay. Yeah, annual, but stills is free. Now I can't, most people, are never they're not like us right most people are just doing their phone thing in what way are you what, what, what do you mean michael they're not like us well we take thousands and thousands and thousands and right. thousands of pictures a year most right. people are just taking hundreds, hundreds of thousands hundreds of thousands so i think <laughs> you know they're gonna lose money on someone like us for sure and i guess they could throttle it back somehow some way i don't i don't know i was hesitant about talking about it because i'm thinking wow if the word gets out, but I've heard it on other podcasts. I've heard people talk about this. Mm -hmm. yeah, I so I just decided to try it and I'm like, it would... sweet to know. have that access from anywhere, right? That's, that's the ticket. Instead of carrying around hard drives to be able to do that or to give access. Um, yeah, now that's the, the other thing, giving access. I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet either. Because mm -hmm. in my process, when this hard drive started to die, I'm like, okay, I need to buy a new hard drive to store all my images. 
you know, I can rebuild this one. It's probably going to be fine for a little while longer, but the writing's on the wall. I should probably upgrade. This is older technology. <clears throat> and on Instagram the other day, I saw an ad for a company called Synology. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. And what they do is it's a NAS drive, N-A-S drive, which is a network area storage, I think is what it stands for. And what that does is it'll allow you to have, let's say in your office, you have a little network set up and you have your laptop and you have a desktop and you plug in this computer into your net or this is a hard drive into your network. And then each computer can access that drive. And it's fast enough over ethernet that two people could work, be working on the same file. So they were talking about in some of the literature that I was reading that you could have Lightroom running over here on a laptop and Lightroom running over there on a desktop and it can still use the same media. So you don't have to have the, that one drive attached to that computer. So that's when I started getting this whole network thing and that's when I started thinking about the cloud. But the thing with the NAS is you can hook it up to the internet. Now everything I read said don't hook it up to the internet. You're just opening up yourself to all kinds of hacks. You know, you've been hearing about all these people getting hacked, these cities getting hacked and their data gets encrypted and you wouldn't want that to happen to you. So I think the safest thing is not to put it on the internet. But if you can, and if you could, I think if you were a good enough student of networking, you could probably build a security system that would keep people out. Well, I don't know, not professional hackers, but you know, who's going to search me out, right? Who wants to? Well, everybody now. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that was so i pay like i don't even know what it is a couple thousand bucks a year for a service to put up all my images for my clients mm -hmm. so that right you know and i thought wow if you could do that all internally and not have to pay that two thousand bucks because these drives are kind of expensive these nas drives but nowhere near what it was five years ago much cheaper now so there's just a lot of stuff to think about, but the one shining moment that came out of that was, let's try this. But I think you need to be diligent about it because if you don't have fast internet, it's going to take forever to upload all these. It's still taking forever. I've just barely scratched the surface. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through every... So in my Lightroom catalog, I've got things separated by species with wildlife. So what I'll do is I'll go through the those catalogs I'll select all the three stars or better, output the original, then I'll export that original to Amazon. Did you check on security at all? Did you research that at all before you just made the jump? Why would you do that, Ron? No, That's of course I didn't. But you're it's something to I got to thinking about that yesterday. I was like, man, I didn't even read that's been my own service. <laughs> yeah. Well, that the security thing has been my only hesitation with using it because I've been the Amazon prime customer for a long time, but I, I've often wondered about just how secure that site is. And because tons of people have access to it and obviously, you know, they're not going to have access to your account, but it just seems like it would be a little bit easier because they've already penetrated one layer just by being a member themselves. So I, that's been my only hesitation and I haven't heard any negative. No, Tr truthfully, I haven't heard anything negative at all from anybody that uses it, but 
Well, if you I see that AWS wonder. logo, like if you're watching a hockey game and you see AWS in the ice on a, as a logo, that's Amazon mm-hmm. Web Services. And I know for a fact that that's this, where I buy the space for that other service I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. I buy it from Amazon. They just mark it up and then sell it to me. So I know all right. those images are currently on Amazon too. So well, I, and I would gotta... expect it's pretty solid. Yeah, they're basically the world's biggest marketplace, so their security's got to be pretty well intact. But it, I guess it's just one more thing. Your credit card, you can shut off. Your images, you can't get back. So that's well, been my only hesitation, but that's a I, fact. It, it is appealing. Yeah, and I think it's the strength of your password too, right? So when you right. open up that yeah. app, you just don't want to be putting in one, two, three, four, five. Six, seven. <laughs> ABCD. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It, I, it's, I think it's worth it. We'll see. I'm not going to do a ton right away. I'm going to do some. I, the reason I have so many up there now is I was like, hmm, let's try this out. So I took, I have one drive that's called Alaska 2019. So that was a lot of the stuff I shot last year. Most of it was video, but I did shoot stills like of moose and eagles and so just on that drive alone, I just said, put it all up. I put up every picture. And it was just kind of a test just to see. <laughs> and that's why I'm at like 50,000. But that wow. includes my cell phone too. And that, my cell phone has like 12,000 images on it. Right? How crazy are our phones? So I'm a little bit like Ron. I'm a little bit conservative with this stuff. But... And so I haven't done any storage on the cloud. But that being said, you know, if these things failed, they'd be out of business as far as this is concerned, right? So they've got to stay on top of it. And and to, to be one step removed, I, you know, until two years ago, I had my own custom-made website that was programmed from scratch. So that made it much harder for anybody to hack or play around with. But it became outdated very outdated so looked at making a new website price set all around minimum price for a interactive website that had monetization on it was what i could get was about fifteen thousand dollars what <laughs> so and up i i know of companies big companies that have paid up to two hundred thousand dollars for their custom website and so 15 was more than I wanted to pay. So I went with one of these services and I went with, I looked at different ones as far as what you could put up there and the functionality of what was being offered. And for the past year and a half, almost two years, I've had a couple of websites on photo shelter and use their service. But my point in bringing it up is I've uploaded all my high res JPEGs to their service. So essentially, trusting them the same way as trusting the cloud with Amazon Prime. I'm paying them much more, obviously, than what's happening with Amazon Prime. I, I'd have to look at the numbers, but I think for the two sites, I'm 1000 or 1100 bucks US a year. So it's out there. The high-res have to be there so that I can just send them it's just for efficiency. I do it differently. I keep a library so when I'm finished with an image and, and prepare it, I have it in high-resolution JPEG ready for market. And I have those folders with wildlife, same idea, separated by species. I can access, they're all numbered, 
and ready to go. And I carry that with me so that when my clients reach out and want a specific image, no matter where I am, in a rental car, in Alberta, or anywhere, I can deliver it. But it's much smaller than the RAWs. They're just ready to go, ready for print, whatever it might be. But that's interesting. So I, I would also have some hesitation trusting it. But here I am trusting a company that I'm just paying that has to, you know, police and have security in the same sense for their content as Amazon would have. It's probably the just cool a good thing. I found too is if you if you tell it, okay, this folder right here. Anytime I open up the Amazon app, the photo app on my computer, it will automatically automatically query that folder and see it and it'll compare it to that folder that's on Amazon web. So even if you only wanted to do it once a week, you open up your Amazon photo app and it's all automatic. It's just going to query that folder. It's going to see that you added another folder in that folder and it's going to upload that folder and all of its contents. So it can become very automated where you just, you create your process you organize your process and then you put it. I'm, the way I'm doing it is dumb right now. I'm just testing though. I can go delete them and then restart it once I get it figured out. But you have to start somewhere and I just figured, okay, let's just try it. And with What's, the high speed internet, I thought, what the heck, let's just see how many I can do just for fun. But I'll probably take most of those down, go out and like I said, select all the, I'll do it with all the client work too that I do. And that is all protected. That's all under, you know, I can't show any of those images. The clients can, but I can't. But I would still put them there because I get calls all the time like you. I'll be on a trip somewhere and they'll call up and say, hey, can, do you have this image of blah, blah, blah? And I have to either call back to the office and get someone to come do it or hopefully I have the drive with me mm -hmm. like you do. Yeah. Or you used Lightroom cc and it's all accessible on the cloud anyway you have access to everything on your home computer through your phone yeah i've not tried that yet i mean i think it but i don't i when i first heard about that everybody was really not happy with it because it was not working but i bet it's working now and it's probably super solid yeah i I have stuck with the Lightroom Classic because it has there. There's more um, more options available for editing than the CC, uh, but that is one that is one piece of that Lightroom CC that I am interested in exploring. But I, I've not committed to it yet. But I think he's right. We. <laughs> There, there's a lot to explore with that. There's a lot of different options. Um, well, it's, it's the way of the future. There's no question. And, and one could argue it's it's the way the present is right now. I mean, if it's, yeah. it's, it's out there, it's available for people who want to do it. And I think eventually everybody will have all their portfolio simply online and accessible by one device wherever they are, whether it's their laptop or their smartphone, and be able to deliver to clients or to send to a print manufacturer whatever image in their portfolio they so desire. It, it's, I mean, it's amazing what we can do now, but I mean, it makes sense down the road to not have to have six hard drives weighing us down in our trench coat. Mm -hmm. So just another little thing that I, I'm holding in my hand and you guys can see it. 
but it's a little like USB solid state device. I just got one of those. And I got one of these prior to all this. I have too many photos to back up on iCloud. So if I want to pay iCloud and then me, I get this fatigue, right? Where how many monthlies do I want to pay? I'm paying monthly for this. I'm paying monthly for this. I mean, if you added it up at the end of the year, if you're not careful, you could be spending five, six thousand bucks on monthlies for a variety of stuff. And I've always been really hesitant. And I think that's one of the reasons I jumped on the Prime, because I pay for that anyway, right? So I thought, well, if we're paying for Prime already, I'm probably not going to get rid of that. I order from Amazon a lot with some of the photo stuff and then just some of the household stuff. But before that, I was trying this little solid-state device. And the cool thing about this is it's got an app, and it's all SanDisk, and it's a SanDisk app. You plug it into your phone, and it basically backs up your phone right on this little thing. So it's kind of cool because it's just a backup 100% of your phone. You just plug it in, and it does the same thing as what Amazon's doing. It just queries everything, just uploads the new, and you know you've always got a backup. How much was that? I haven't seen that before. Oh, I don't remember. It was a little I bit just, more than I just got a sixty-four gig a sixty-four gig one and it was fifty-nine bucks, I think. Yeah, and I had not... to get the my phone is a two fifty six, so I got the two fifty six one just because I wanted it to match the phone and it was a right. little bit more than that, but I don't remember. Probably like eighty bucks or something. Wow. But it's a pretty slick little device. But really, out of anybody, I would trust Apple the most. It seems like they have the best security and the best encryption and, you know, not, they're not the ones that are out there giving information away. So maybe iCloud is the better way to go. And it's not that expensive either. I think it's a hundred and some odd dollars a year. I don't know. I just don't know where it stops. You're never going to be able to retire if we keep, <laughs> keep signing up yeah. for this stuff. All right? this new tech. <laughs> well, you know, in our audience, you know, go online and research this stuff. It won't be hard on Google to read reviews and look at the different plans and expenses for iCloud versus Amazon Prime and what works for your system. That's yep. good stuff. Well, wow. we'll see. I mean, I'm sure uh, hopefully our listeners have some feedback to you as far as if they're using it or what they're finding that works. Like I said, I don't really like the apps, but I haven't messed around with them too much. Like, I thought I would be able to jump on my phone and find the images that I uploaded on my computer, which would be, the, like, the Eagle stuff that Ron and I just shot. I just put up all those images. But I can't. I can't find it. But if I log on on my computer, then I can find it. Hmm. And on my computer, I can find my phones, but I can't find my computer from my phone. Because I thought it'd be cool to do what Ron was saying with Lightroom. You could do it all from your phone. But I don't know if it's just me being a ding-dong or... or it just doesn't do it. I'll mess around a little bit more and give a report after I figure it out, but. Hopefully they'll add that. I mean, apps are advancing all the time, right? Every couple yep. of weeks updates and they'll iron out those things so that it's user friendly across the different platforms. One would hope you want to be able to send it from your smartphone. Pretty much mm -hmm. nonstop. But this data stuff's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as we go further and further and further. So you got to kind of stay up on it. Well, it's a good point with the technology changing and the hard drives becoming dated in that kind of system. And it happens with all of our computer systems. You know, we're good for four or five years. 
and then they just slowly shut down, won't accept the updates, things don't work as smoothly. So. Yep. Speaking of questions for our audience, I'll spin, I'll, I'll spin on something that came up today on Instagram. Uh, Daniel sent a message asking me about my Nikon 200 to 500 millimeter and whether I was happy with this lens. He also shoots this lens, but is having difficulty having the animals or the subject when it's greater than 50 yards away being sharp in focus. So, and it, I assume that is at the extremes too, even further away. I haven't had that experience with my two to five, but I have heard heard of some people having difficulties and he has sent his into Nikon and they did adjust it somehow some way and it was improved but it's still not fixed so my question is it's such a popular popular lens and when it is sharp and working well is amazing I, I'm very happy with my two to five hundred but I'm curious to know how many people out there are shooting this lens and if they're having difficulty. So thumbs up, thumbs down. Please give us some feedback on, on our social media. Send us a DM, send us a comment, and let us know on Instagram or Facebook or on our website. If you shoot the Nikon 200 to 500, we're just curious for the sake of our audience and for the number of people that are using this lens, how it's performing for you. Because the price point is phenomenal, right? $1,500 for this lens but it does have to be sharp because we spend far more than that on our trips and our travel and our time and our effort involved that if there's some compromise for a significant portion of them out there, then it may be worth spending more on a different telephoto that Nikon or another manufacturer offers. Hard to know. But like I said, with mine, I'm totally happy with it, but I've had some queries from people over the past two years asking about it. So give us some feedback, if you will, and let us know if yours is working really well or not. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Did you guys fine tune that focus with your camera bodies with that lens when you got it? Or did you just plop it on and start shooting and it was good results out of the gate? I had a little bit of trouble with mine right out of the gate. Um, so I had to, you know, I did talk to Mark and kind of ask him where he had everything set because it's got a couple different modes. Um, for the vibration reduction, it's got a sport mode, which I I used after talking to Mark. I switched to that, um, and then but the the D850 now has an in camera calibration, and I did use that tool. So it's like micro adjusting, but you don't have to, you know, get the real elaborate setup in place. You can just micro adjust basically by taking images with your camera and it's all through the menu system and I'm not 100% if the D500 has it I think it does but I'm not 100% and then uh, I know the D5 does of course and I'm you know so how far back that goes I'm not sure I you know I've always micro adjusted my lenses but if they're if they're close I'll just you know pick a spot on a on a tree where I've, you know, the bark has a certain texture and I'll adjust it to that. And you can even do that in the field, you know, move it forward or back. But I, if there's a major problem, then I've always taken it in and had somebody put it on the, the micro adjustment scale and make sure I take the time to do it a hundred percent. But this lens didn't take much, um, just a couple of minor tweaks and I've been pleased with the results. From time to time, I've had issues, but when I look back and think back about the circumstances, 
typically it's it's an issue with the with me or shooting from a vehicle or something like that rather than it being the lens itself yeah i'm wondering that's what was my first question with this with this question we got is you know has he taken the time to try to micro adjust to pair that body with that lens because if yep. that might be a really easy fix and you know you get some sleep instead of worrying about it all night yeah exactly that's a good point i didn't and do I, that with mine because it, it was good out of the gate but i have helped other photographers in the field who i've run into are having problems and match up their lens with their camera that way so i think it's good advice to do that and, and I, I wish i'd replied in the message to him i'll do that after the podcast tonight send him that i that idea as well i've just done it where i'll focus on if, if i'm doubtful of how sharp the images are, I'll focus on a license plate of the vehicle and just step back 20, 30 yards and play around and, and then zoom in and make sure it's tack sharp. And if not, then you'd have to make those adjustments. Which is the perfect segue into our question of the week. It is. How'd you know? <laughs> you got a good memory, man. So I mentioned that question of the week before the podcast. So Ben on Instagram commented today and wanted to know how... Can you be sure your image is tack sharp? He says a lot of times an image will look and focus in the viewfinder, even on the camera screen, but on the computer screen, it's a bit fuzzy. So who wants to take it? I can take it. Okay. <laughs> First of all, you know, when if you have new equipment, it's something you have to test. And that's just what we just talked about take your new pairing of your camera and your lens out and test it on something where you can confidently know you're getting sharp images. Look at your viewfinder, look at the back of the camera and then bring it in and zoom. Here's the ticket. Zoom in on your editing software to 100% and make sure if it's an animal, the eye is sharp or whatever the central point of focus is that you want to be sharp is sharp. So for me, it has to be tack sharp at 100% in Photoshop on my computer or on camera raw, you can zoom into 100%. Then over time, just by doing that, and I do that with every image I edit. I always zoom to 100% before proceeding with any time invested in the editing. After a short period of time, you have confidence in your gear. You know that that lens and that camera body work well together and are tack sharp. Trusting the viewfinder in the back of the camera is a no brainer once you know the system works. But you need to verify that with your computer. And the best way, from all of my experiences, just zooming into 100% on your computer screen. Make sure it's a good screen, too. That helps. But can you, can you do that? Now, you guys are both shooting Nikon. Can you zoom in on your Nikon on the screen on the back and feel confident that if it you looks can. sharp there, it's going to be just as sharp on your... Because that's where you really want to know, right? You want to know you got it in the field. Especially, it, it speaks to you just being prepared and doing all that testing before you actually go out. And that's where you do it, where you're out in your backyard and then you take it to your computer and you test. And, With but, new gear, yes. Yeah, but when you're in the field, let's say you're out shooting whatever, um, elk, and are you confident enough to know that, okay, I just took this picture, you zoom in as high as it'll go on the back of the camera, you can tell right there, yep it's totally 100% there. Is that screen on those cameras good enough to, to give you that confidence? Yeah. It's a, it's a good screen that on the, on the D850. And I think the D 
D5 is even a little bit higher resolution, but you can zoom in enough to know with pretty fair certainty that it's a sharp image. And then, yeah, same as what Mark said, once you get it back, go one-to-one. But zooming in in the field, it's it's not 100% because actually the camera's creating a JPEG that is what you're looking at. So there's some minor adjustments to it. But there's you can do so with uh, with about, what, 95 to 99% certainty that what you're looking at is a sharp image or, you know, it's just, it's not what you hoped it would be. So it, it definitely tells a story. Once, once I'm confident in the camera, I mean, knock on wood, I've never had one slip. And so I know that if an image isn't tack sharp, I've done something wrong. Shutter speed was too, too slow. I was moving. There are times that I'll just shoot while moving, right? Things are happening quickly. And the camera and lens can often pull that off, but not always. And so it didn't work. And so it's not... I. Once I've tested new equipment before going into the field and know it's tack sharp, you know, you can look at the back of the camera. But for me, I like to look at my big desktop monitor and zoom into 100%. And, you know, then I know that it's, it doesn't take long to, to develop that confidence. So in the field, I, you know, it's, yes, yeah, definitely easy to look at the back of the camera. And I do that all the time. I chimp after the shoot and look at it. If it's an exciting image that I just can't wait to verify and high five the air that it's sharp. So I, when you say test in the, and I guess we could just talk about this just for people that when you're testing in the backyard, the best practice would be set it on a tripod, remove any vibration, remove the human element as much as you can. Right. Because all you're concerned about is making sure that that camera is shooting sharp images to start with. And they actually make little charts that you can buy that have a bunch of lines and, you know, all kinds of information on these charts that allow you to figure out, okay, and you should do it at different distances. You should do it at different apertures. You should do it at different ranges. If it's a zoom lens, just different spots within that. And you can really figure out, oh, this lens is super sharp at 480, but at 500, it's not. So just take that into consideration. If you're going to keep that lens... Just know at 480 at whatever, 5.6, it's totally sharp. Then make sure you're doing that in the field. You know that it's sharp removing the human element. So now if you're getting blurry images or soft images in the field, it's your whatever you're doing. So then maybe you need to get that three-point stance going a little bit better. You may need to shoot higher shutter speeds. You may need to do who knows what to improve those images in the field. But you've got to have a good base to start with. You can't just be out shooting, you know, elk and then say, oh, this this lens is a piece of junk. You've got to have that base to work with. I think that's a phenomenal suggestion. Remove the human element. That way you can really test your gear. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you don't have a cable release to do that with, then just use your camera's timer and you get the same result. Yep. Yeah, and those charts, I use those charts. I mean, for video equipment, it's really important. And back in the day, we would have to mess around with back focus and all kinds of stuff. And you would really, you know, and then some of these lenses, like my 70 to 200 is not consistent throughout. If I focus at 80 and then I zoom into 200, it's not going to be in focus. 
Whereas a really expensive, really nice $10,000 video lens, that lens is solid throughout. I can change the focal distance and I know it's going to be sharp. It'll maintain that. It's just built in. The quality is built into the lens. Whereas some of these lenses, you just, it's really, you got to get to know your equipment. Mm-hmm. And there's so many variables. Right. But if you remove the human element and test your equipment, you know that that's working, right? Right. You're the variable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me wonder between this lens, and I forget the exact millimeter length of it, but the one that Nikon brought out a year ago or last year. 180, uh, to, 180 to 400 with the, with the 1.4 built-in converter, right? Mm-hmm. And like, the price point difference is 10 for, times the price. Yeah. Right? 13000 bucks or $12,000, something like that. It was insane. So I was shooting with uh, someone that you know, Ron. I don't know if you know him, Mark. You may know him. His name is Andrew Kane. Mm -hmm. And he had some interest in, uh, I think it was lens rentals. One of them. I don't know. He had uh, some sort of situation where he was able to get a lot of different use of those lenses. He might even own part of the company. I don't know. But he was telling me that with this 200 to 400, that I use the 200 to 400 Canon. He's tried them out of the box and they're not sharp. He's also tried them out of the box where they're just tack sharp. He's like, you just got to keep trying until you find the one that works with your camera body. And he was, he was doing all kinds of stuff where he would, if he rented a lens and it performed, you know, they, if you guys have ever rented a lens from those guys, you can actually buy that lens. You can say, no, nah, I'm not going to return it. I'm just going to buy it. And they'll give you the price of what it cost to buy it. And it's not that much different than if you went out and bought a brand new one. So if you happen to get a lens from lens rentals that you really liked and it was just performing on your camera body with your style of shooting, that might be one to buy. So you could throw that out there too. I mean, you could test a bunch of stuff and not buy anything. Just keep renting until you found the one that you really liked. I think I'd get killed if I started going that route. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm just curious ever since they announced this lens you know I, for a similar focal about, range 10 times yeah. the price obviously the housing is more rugged we know that but if you can buy 10 of the two to five hundreds for the same price point why wouldn't you just do that and i've used my two to five i don't know now if it's two or three years for all my wildlife stuff no problems i you know i'm careful with my gear but i haven't babied it so what's the difference and maybe is it just I'm totally guessing, but is it just that some with the two to five you're going to get sharp ones and not? Whereas this one eighty to four, everything's bang on. Is that well, you know, it's like I, it's like Michael's two to four hundreds internal zoom mechanism instead of being like a trombone style, you right. know where it's extending. It's everything's mm-hmm. internal and built in, so obviously it's a lot more weather tight and a lot more consistent. But I'm of the same opinion. I've thought about renting it just to see. I mean, that right. two to four hundred Canon, that's a phenomenal lens. They, when they engineered that thing, they did a fantastic job. And I just said phenomenal, Missy. I apologize. <laughs> I've said so but, a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I have contemplated renting that lens just to see 
and you know, especially when you're down to a place like Colorado where there's some accessibility, there's some places that you can rent it from, so you don't have to have it shipped back and forth. You can just drop it back off when you're done, just to kind of see what the difference is. And but I've been afraid too because the two to five has worked pretty good, and I don't need to spend any more money than that. But well, I think that's it. There's two two points there. If you got if what you have is working, then just go with it. But if you really are concerned and you really want to know what the difference is, rent it. And then do that same test we just talked about. Check it in the backyard. Check it. Remove the human element. Shoot the same exact thing at the same exact focal length length on a tripod and just compare the difference. You know, I, I got to think it's going to be better. Well, you know, number one thing, you're going to get lower light performance, right? Right, yeah. Then you're going to have the bokeh of the lens, which is probably going to be way... I would expect it to be different, but you're never going to know unless you shoot them side by side. You know, how does it handle really pretty soft evening light? Maybe it just looks way better. Maybe it's just got a different coating on the lens. Maybe it's just, I don't know, less refraction of light in the lens. Who knows? But you're never going to know unless you try it out. And we rent stuff all the time for our shoots. It has never been easier. I can tell you, we... We'll rent something and we'll just have it shipped to the hotel we're going to be at. We'll use it. They have you guys rented anything? It is so simple. It shows up in a box. You don't throw that box away. You unpack it, keep that box nice and safe because you return it in that box with they send you the tape, they send you the the sticker. They, it's it's like you can't mess it up. So other than oh, the cost I of can the actual find a way. <laughs> Other than the cost of that rental, which is really reasonable. it I have one guy that I hire a lot to, for a lot of shoots, and he just would rather rent. And I just pay for his gear when, when, I, when I hire him, and it's the same price whether he's renting or he owns it. And that's how he operates is everything's rental. And he probably makes out. I would assume, like us, my justification for having – all this gear, owning all this gear is with wildlife, you can't schedule it, right? Mm-hmm. If I wake up and it's, or if I'm watching the weather and I'm, I know tomorrow morning is going to be awesome, either you have it or you don't, right? Whereas when we're doing a shoot, when we're paid to do a shoot, it's on a schedule. So we can, we can schedule around it. So it makes it a lot easier in that situation. But for wildlife, you always pretty much got to have it. Yeah, that's a good point. I I'm I think I'm afraid to test it because of the ten times the price. And the two to five's been really good. And and the two to five when it came out had an extra element of extra low dispersion glass, one more than the two to four had. So and I noticed improved contrast in, in my opinion from the two to four to this new two to five. It was sharper in my opinion and had better contrast. But, and some of that's probably attributed to the body. Because you're shooting a different camera body. And then some of it's going to be attributed to the lens. And yeah, I think you just, I think you just got to shoot. You just got to use what you're going to use and find something you like and then just do it. There's a million ways to skin that cat. Enjoy the equipment you have. Make the most of it. (laughs) Be there for the experience. But keep this stuff on the radar for those of you that are interested in looking for the sharpest and best equipment out there and we thank ben for the question of the week on instagram today and encourage all of you out there to send us any questions you have we will answer all of them and and feature one on a podcast as question of the week 
So this week's podcast, we're going to talk about, dive into building a portfolio on a specific species. Michael, Ron, and I are each going to highlight one of our favorite subjects to photograph and how we have built a significant portfolio around those animals and how we did it, why we were passionate about it, and how it's turned out to be successful for us. So, Michael, I'm going to encourage you to go first because I know the subject that you want to cover, we are all passionate about and can add in and... Well, let me just tell you the reason I chose that species when I started was it had a market for it. So part of my reasoning behind it was, hey, I think I can sell these images. And it was back in the day when it was pretty decent money to go out and supply images to a magazine or whatever. And so that was a huge part of the decision of what I was going after you know, it's going to be different for everybody else. And it's probably totally different now. And in fact, I think nowadays, if you're going to make a statement, you're going to make a better statement shooting caterpillars than you are shooting elk because you just don't see those images. And if you can produce spectacular images of a whole life cycle of a caterpillar, that's going to stand out in the crowd. Right. But back in the day when I started, you're talking about elk. a caterpillar to a butterfly. Yeah, not, yeah. Ah. So you want you to shoot that, you know, and that kind of is what leads into this whole thing. I chose elk. They were close by. I never had to drive more than an hour, hour and a half away. I could get to them year-round, and I knew I needed to have that portfolio. Had to have winter. Had to have spring. We had to have summer. And then I could, I could vary it, too. So with elk in Colorado, you can shoot at 12,000 feet. You can shoot at 5,000 feet, so you're going to get all kinds of habitats, and it just was the one thing that it made it easy. It kind of, re- back to our podcast we did last week with photographing close to home, it had to be that too. I didn't have a budget. I just knew I had to have a portfolio. I knew I had to have that whole, tell that whole story. Males, females, young of the year, every season, um, different conditions, predators that prey on those animals, everything that that makes up that particular species. So that's what I started with was elk. And if you go out and photograph them in the fall, there's not much more fun that you can have. I mean, fall elk is amazing. No matter where you're at, whether you're in Wyoming or Canada, or it's just pretty spectacular stuff and it's fun. So most professional wildlife photographers that I've come to know over the decades are self-taught. Now, there are some that have gone and studied at school, but most have a background in animal behavior and are passionate about that. To go even further, I only know a handful of generalists, if you will, who photograph all aspects of nature. Now, we we all are enthralled with everything in nature. I, I know I am, whether it's from the caterpillars to the butterflies to the songbirds to the marine mammals to terrestrial mammals to birds. Everything's awesome on this planet, and there's so much to photograph. But... What we're talking about today is what I've found is to become successful, it's easier if you have a niche and a specialization. So by focusing on a species like Michael's talking about with the elk and capturing all the seasonality and behavioral differences and illustrating that builds a portfolio that if you you become known for that. So for instance, I've been asked to go and do horse calendars over the years. I'm like, uh, I'm not a horse photographer. 
nothing against horses. I could do horses, but to do it well and to build a portfolio is a commitment. And to do it well enough on a professional scale to make money at it requires a high-end portfolio, collection of images, thousands of images. I don't have the time to do that with horses. I pick my niche, and like Michael has said, elk is you know historically a very big market. Still is a good market, but you know if it's close to you and there's so much you can do seasonality. And and so my subject is is very close to yours and white-tailed deer. And I've written two books on white-tailed deer. First one was in this is this is scary, 1999. <laughs> was a Ooh. while ago. That was a fun book to do, and, and it was 30,000 words the uh, publisher wanted. A fun, a fun book to write, and all about whitetail behavior, and that was my background too. But I've been nuts about large mammals and antlered mammals ever since I was a teenager. So whitetail deer are everywhere. So the word for that's ubiquitous. They're an animal that exists everywhere but are hard to see in most places because they're very shy, they're very wild and secretive. But for those of us that pay attention to the details, and especially with the power of social media these days, we can find where we can go to film these subjects. White-tailed deer, like elk, have incredible seasonality through spring. Now, fawns are being born just like elk calves, right? So how cute are they? Wildflowers are popping up. They've got these spotted babies who want to do nothing but eat, sleep, and run and play. So think about documenting that, the playful nature of these young animals, the interactions with one another, with the parents, with the mother in this case. And then there's antler growth, which we touched on on other podcasts, but that's a phenomenal thing to capture and document with photography or video, as these are the fastest growing bones known on the planet. And it can be an inch a day. And I would, you know, and not that I, as a biologist, I don't know anybody who's had the privilege to measure elk and moose, but it's got to be more through June. June is the month that antlers just change every day. You can go out and find new points, new tines. The paddles are getting bigger. So documenting that is very exciting over those weeks from May through July. Then the antlers are finished growing, solidified to bone which takes a month. So from mid-July through to mid-August, that process happens. And the velvet that's in sheath this, these antlers while they're growing, which is what supplies this blood flow for this fastest growing bone, shrink wraps. And then the antlers become hard. I'm gonna go into the biology because I get asked these questions on Instagram, just to clarify. In late August, for some of the antlered animals into the, maybe the second week of September, the latest for some others, they shed their velvet by rubbing on trees or shrubbery because the velvet's dried. There's no pain. There are no nerve endings. It's hardened bone underneath, but there's a bit of a blood residue. That is such a narrow window of opportunity to photograph. And some of my most marketable images have been when those antlers are red because it's 24 hours or so to capture that. Then overnight testosterone levels skyrocket and rutting behavior starts. And you have the opportunity to film the, so in the summertime, the bucks or bulls will often be together in small groups called bachelor groups, and they'll socialize, they'll watch for predators together, they'll eat, sleep together, travel together. It may just be two, it may be five animals. Once that velvet comes off, as wildlife photographers, 
we have the exciting opportunity to photograph or film sparring because they now have to form a dominance hierarchy where they figure out who is the biggest and baddest, meanest, and most talented fighter. They do that over several weeks through September. And again, testosterone levels keep climbing. Now they're going to start rubbing trees. They're going to start making scrapes or for um, caribou, elk, moose, making wallow pits, starting to scrape up the ground with their hooves and urinating. All this is building, building for the rep. And then there's opportunity to get them actually fighting or tending females, pursuing, chasing females. Through autumn, we have fall color. So the point is, in any of these species, if they are accessible to you where you live, you can really have a tremendous amount of fun building a portfolio, telling the story, and learning about the life cycle and behavior of these dynamic species. And these antlered animals, every male has a different set of antlers. No two are identical. That is so cool to see, and it's all based on their fitness and their genetic diversity or their genetic prowess, as well as the nutrition they've had that year. And by fitness means if they are healthy, if they haven't had any injuries or something to set them back. If they do have an injury, then it will reduce the potential for their antlers. Here's a cool biological fact too: is that they can steal calcium from their skeletal structure. Some of the biggest bulls, most mature, through the summer, and then restore it in autumn through forage. So that's an interesting compromise that they can do as well. So they, then there's the rut, there's fall color, there's behavior. We've got different lighting situations. We have frost with breath, with bull elk bugling. And then we can get into winter and still, and it's like a whole book. We can close the story with winter, metabolism slow down, testosterone drops. The most successful males that have had bred the most females through autumn, their testosterone levels drop faster so they'll drop their antlers and that relieves the weight through the winter months you can document that that is a tough one to get you know i waited years and years to get an image of a buck with whitetails with one antler i do not despite my moose portfolio ron there's another image i need you talked about people coming with me it'd be good to go with mark on a moose trip because he's got all the images i don't have a moose with one antler with the other one dropped off we, we've heard of a fellow who's followed a bull for days knowing he would drop, right, his antlers to document that. So there's so much you can do by focusing on one of these species. And the point is, like Michael, when we got into this profession, white-tailed deer are all over North America. And there's a few exceptions geographically where you can't find them. But you can find them all the way to the Yukon. Not a tremendous population up there, but they've been seen as far north as the southern Yukon and all the way down into Florida. Different subspecies. And Bergman's rule, animals get bigger the further north you go. And white-tailed deer, there's another super cool thing. If you travel, you photograph whitetails in the north, they're probably four times the size of what you'll get as the key deer, the smallest subspecies in Florida. So that's another level, another way to tell this story is you can capture different subspecies, different habitat, and build that portfolio. And for me, personally, white-tailed deer, historically, was a tremendous market because so many people love white-tailed deer because they associate them with wildlife. You know, when I was in university, I was studying white-tailed deer and I was giving talks in some of the parks where my research was going on and I would lead guided hikes. And the, the common saying was, 
know, people, everybody would stop and point if they saw a deer, no matter where. Look, a deer. It's that they're excited to see that, that fleeting moment, because we know they can vanish in an instant, despite them living all around us. They have the, they're so secretive. So it's, it was a, a very significant market for me to focus on, as well as one that I was very passionate about, and build the portfolio around this one species. And then, honestly, I branched out from there. After doing my first book on white-tailed deer, then I started doing more on moose and elk. And traveling out west, I had a little bit more budget so I could experience the Rockies and go places where there were elk. Uh, there weren't in Ontario at that time. There are there are elk here now, but not to the numbers you can find in, in the western Rockies for sure. And then build these other portfolios that kind of added on to my white-tailed deer because I had the ability to travel, you know, and where and bears, another one, and finding these places where to go and film different species of bears and different habitat. And, and one thing, too, is if you're focusing on a species, I had a place for bears, for instance, that was phenomenal for a concentration of animals for behavior. And I learned so much filming there for seven or eight years. I mean, it was unbelievable how my perspective of, of black bears, in this case, changed from the beginning over these years. But it was very limited for habitat. It was one type of forest. I had a very limited opportunity where I could film because there was this fellow who lived in this remote area and it was on his property in this wilderness. I found another place, I guess I was about eight years after starting to film those bears, I found a place where the habitat was far more diverse. And in one day I could, and this was at West, and one day I could I could get grand landscapes of mountains or close-ups around an evergreen, you know, if everything worked out with a lot of work and patience and, and searching. But so building a portfolio, I honestly don't think my career would have launched as well if I was a generalist. And I've seen other nature photographers who do everything. I just, from what I've seen over the decades, it takes longer to get established. Whereas if, if there is a viable market for species, if you become known as one of the people that has the best portfolio for that species, now there are other things in the business too, this is a long soapbox, eh, guys? That's <laughs> <laughs> not just the best portfolio. You've got to be a good person to work with. You've got to be ethical and honest and fair. Fair to your client and expect fairness back. Whether it's somebody buying a print or a publisher, you know, whatever the medium is that you're selling to, whatever the market is, it's got to be fair on both sides of the equation. Well, that I have like five or six things to add into that. Please based off of things that you said, but I think let's get Ron to talk about what his species was. <clears throat> and I think it's very dependent on where we live, right? Is that what your case is, Ron? Absolutely. I, you know, I did, when I was working for the game and fish department, I had access to some areas where I could, I could have had access to sheep, bighorn sheep every, every day of the year as well. Um, kind of like you guys, but moving over to the East side of the state, I had to kind of adapt because it's all prairie species over here. And some of them are more photographed than others. Sage grouse are one of my favorites, but a lot of people have done sage grouse. And a lot, you know, people are just interested in the, uh, the strutting images because let's be honest, the sage grouse isn't all that appealing to look at outside of the lecking season. So, when I, I I talked, I think last week actually, or w one of the more recent podcasts about seeing my first swift fox, 
and how excited I got. I mean, I, w- I was on a law enforcement call. I had to go handle a situation, but I was more excited about seeing that fox than I was about getting where I needed to be. So as I, you know, I saw that fox, and then it was a while before I saw another one. And as I started to get more proficient in with my photography, I just started to spend more and more time looking. And, of course, the easiest time to get swift foxes during the denning season. And you kind of have a window between February and uh, February and late July to August where they're going to be available during the daytime because the vast majority of the year, swift fox are nocturnal, which makes them very difficult to photograph and very difficult to get, you know, behavioral type shots. So starting in February when they're starting to match up or made up, I have a friend that got a great sequence of uh, two males fighting. You know, that, that's kind of where it begins is they're, they're starting to mate up, starting to pair up. And they're, I don't know for a fact, and I haven't even read any research on whether or not swift fox tend to mate with the same, the same male and female, or if it's just, uh, you know, luck of the draw or being in the right place at the right time and, and being the more dominant male. So that's something that I would I'd like to find out, but I, I haven't had access to any of that research. So we start with the the fighting season or the mating season in February, and then typically they they maintain their nocturnal uh, habits until the kits are about four or five weeks old, and then the kits will start to come out of the den, and even if it's just to to peek out. So identifying those den sites is the most important aspect of photographing swift fox. And I, I, I chose to focus on swift fox because the first den site that I found, I just realized how social these animals were and how you know playful and these behaviors appeal to a wide audience, not just people who are interested in wildlife. Now you've got a small canid and you know, everybody loves dogs or most people love dogs so they can relate to this animal. Then you start to establish their size and they're barely bigger than a house cat. So if you can put that into a kind of a scale for people to see, then they start to relate even more because everything's stacked against these things. I mean, bobcats are a large male bobcat is twice the size of a swift fox. So if you talk about these two predators coming into the same area, a bobcat is far more dominant than a swift fox will be, so they're easily pushed out. And obviously coyotes, canids, for those that don't know, if you're the dominant canid species in an area, like wolves will try to kill all the coyotes. They don't want any competition. And it's the same with coyotes, red fox, and red fox and swift fox. And then bobcats, of course, they're they're kind of on their own, but they're in the same habitat, in the same ecosystem, and so they're going to protect their food source as well. Swift fox and bobcats probably uh, biologically are more similar in their prey base. Swift fox eat a lot of birds. Bobcats eat a lot of birds. Swift fox focus on rabbits. Bobcats focus on rabbits. Where swift fox make the bread and butter is with prairie dogs. And that's something that we did touch on last week as well. They'll a lot of times set up a den site adjacent to or right in the middle of a prairie dog town. So the only competitors there typically are badgers. And they don't, there's not a lot of 
competition there. But as far as getting the life cycle of the swift fox, you know, you're you're basically going to get them coming out of the den, get the fights beforehand, the mated pair, and then you're going to get those kits as they as they grow. The last time you see a swift fox is when they start to leave the den site and go out on the hunts. And then you know you're you're pretty much done because from that point forward they just get more and more nocturnal. I talked about the reason I kind of chose to focus on them being their uh, behavior, but also not a lot of people have good swift fox images. So to be able to you know like Mark was talking about being able to establish a, a market for yourself, just that time in the field and and being in a place where I can have six dens and if one is an active one day I can generally go to another that's close enough that I can get to them before dark and be able to get some images and not waste a day so being able to have that diversity in their behavior diversity in the images diversity in the weather because you have that opportunity if if there's a storm going to want toward one den that's where I want to be because the sky is going to be a lot more interesting. You're going to be able to add some elements into the images, you know, like a rainbow, that kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily be able to, if you just had one site to photograph on. I am probably of the three of us more of a generalist, but it's, it's been out of necessity because as prairie species, you just have these limited windows and then, you know, they're in this giant ocean of prairie and in the area that I live in and the area that I photograph in, it's not like I'm next to a lot of uh, national parks or state parks. I'm, I'm photographing on private land and some of it I have access to and some of it I don't. So to be able to capitalize on every possibility, you've got to be more of a more of a generalist type photographer. But I guess, you know, my my focus would be prairie species overall not just one over another, but swift fox are far and away my favorite. And I, somebody asked me that a while back, and it, there was not even any hesitation. Just, that just kind of rolled off the tongue, just because they're just so fun to be around. With with your liking, you've had the opportunity to take people out in the field with you. Is that something uh, you could do with the swift fox dens too? Yeah, the swift fox, the, well, some of them I would say yes. Some of them are a lot more tolerant than others. There are landowners that don't give them a lot of time. Uh, and then there are landowners that just enjoy watching them. And those are the guys that I try to focus on because they get more habituated to, you know, a vehicle or to human presence. If they alert, they're gone and they won't come back at, you know, above ground until well after dark. So your opportunity is finished. So these people that are, you know, take the time to watch them and observe them. That's kind of where I focus my efforts because they're generally easier to see and, uh, and get it, the images of, in fact, I got a call yesterday that you probably better come out because, you know, this whole prairie dog town, prairie dog complex actually got completely wiped out, um, because of the plague and the, you know, fleas carry the plague. So obviously fleas are going to feed on swift fox just as much as they would or badgers bobcats just as much as they would prairie dogs and with the swift fox going into these holes that are plague infested holes with the with the fleas in those holes 
you know, there's a good chance that it's going to impact that animal. So the call that I got yesterday was pretty exciting. It snowed, so it's a lot easier to glass and and find animals. But there's five kits on this den, and it's an area where I've been before, and I know they're they're very tolerant there. So yeah, that's a location where I could take people out with me. Sweet. On the the lex, it you know depends on the landowner and depends on the individuals that I'm taking, whether or not I'm willing to take them to those locations. But yes, that's absolutely something that you could take somebody out on. I'm excited to get some video or more video this year. That's something I'm going to try to focus on. One of the points I was going to make to what you were saying, Mark, was you're, if you're going to build a portfolio of a species, it doesn't mean it's only that species, right? Because once the, the calving is done with elk or with a deer, then you have the whole predation thing. So now you've got this indirect relationship where it's just as important to try to shoot a coyote or film a bobcat or film a mountain lion or whatever, whatever would be the, the predator for that species. It's just as important for that story. So it gives you that diversity and, and you get the low hanging fruit first, right? You go out during the rut, you go out when they're, they're really not paying attention to people and you get all your shots and that kind of builds that base of that portfolio then you just branch out and it's a little bit higher fruit. And now you're trying to get whatever it is, the antlers falling off something that's a little bit more difficult, or you want to get the fall color and you want to just get that perfect shot or that mountain landscape behind them. Or, you know, you just keep building and keep building. And then all of a sudden other species enter the fold. So now you diversifying your portfolio, both with species, but it all relates back to that original plan. And that's what you're doing too, Ron, because now mm -hmm. you've got, Prairie dogs is the whole deal, or you've got badgers, you've got bobcats, all these other interactions that come into play. So now your portfolio from that initial point just naturally grows because you're telling this life story. So I think the other point I was going to make is for you, Mark, doing that book is awesome, right? Because you know you have to do all of that. So you like, have to build a portfolio right. whether you want to or not, because you are not going to have a book that's very good if you, all you have are deer in the rut pictures. Mm -hmm. You've got to tell the whole thing. If you're going to write 30,000 words, and I can't imagine that. I don't think I, I don't well, think it's not I've as bad. It's not 10,000 words in my lifetime, but 30,000 words, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff to talk about. That's, and it's great because you get to educate on every aspect of that, of that species. So, if someone was going to go out and start building a portfolio, that might be a good way to look at it. You know, and you have a roadmap. There's a million roadmaps out there. Go buy a book on any species and watch, see how they did it. Look at the images that were done and then just apply that to the species that you choose, whatever it is. It's a fun project that takes years because like you say, you, you know, you just start building with the portraits and some action shots and then, but to get those specific behaviors and get them in good light done well takes years. And like you say, the predator thing too. I mean, I could not have done these books on deer without having predator images. You have to right. tell the story. It's this, you know, this is wildlife. It's prey and predators. Mm -hmm. right. And when are they vulnerable? You know, calving or fawning, wintertime, all these stories have to be told as part of the book. So you can weave in this other content 
And it's a lot of fun to build that kind of portfolio when you're focused on something. And it may not be elk, it may not be deer, it may not be moose or swift fox, but whatever you're passionate about, you know, maybe it's monarch butterflies and you you film them where you live here in North America and you, their life cycle. But then maybe you have enough, an opportunity and save some money to travel to where they overwinter in Mexico and get them all around those trees. I mean, yeah. The last couple of years, what I've seen coming off of social media, phenomenal, the, the quantity of, of monarch butterflies is so such a relief to see them doing so well well right now because they had such a low for so many years. Whatever your passion is to build the story around them, then other things will develop as far as a market goes. Yeah. Well, and then and uh, that say, recognition would develop too, right? Because people yes. do find out, oh, hey, Ron, if I want a swift fox picture in the U.S., I need to call Ron because he's been doing it for years. He's seen all this stuff. It sounds like you're at the point now where you're going to spend, what, four weeks to try to get one picture if you're going to start capturing nocturnal behavior, right? You're, right. You've are you got all the low-hanging fruit. Now you're getting these pie-in-the-sky. If you right. could get an image of a, of a swift fox climbing a tree in the dark to do hunting or something, you know, that's the image you need to add to your portfolio. Yeah. And it's, it's been interesting. They, they'll make some adjustments. And, and like you said, the low hanging fruit would be the denning behavior as far as swift fox or any canid. And then you have to focus on, you know, predator prey relationships, focus on the hunt. And that is, I have not gotten the hunt. I've seen them with food, but I haven't gotten the hunt itself. Uh, so that's another one that I haven't gotten. And then, uh, you know, telling the whole story because there is an interaction with agriculture as well. And not what people would think. A lot of people would think, you know, a swift fox like red fox, and they will predate on chickens or, you know, caged animals. There's no doubt. Um, but they also will go in these grain silos before the grain silos are full. and the end of the winter, there's still a lot of mice and the swift fox make their way into the grain silos and they'll they'll predate mice in the silo and bring them back out. So that's another behavior that I would like to, I've got some friends that have, have had this occur on their ranch and I got permission to put some cameras in that I potentially can get some video. Um, it, it likely is going to be during the nighttime, but get some video from a trail cam of the swift fox entering the silo and, and predating on the mice. So I'm kind of excited about that as well. Well, and I think that just opens up another whole can of worms because now you have to be proficient with the species. You have to know all this behavior. You have to have the biology. You have to have all this stuff figured out. But now you have to become a technical wizard with equipment because if you're going to capture that nocturnal stuff and you're going to try to shoot stills and you're going to try to shoot video, then you're figuring out how do you run a trigger? How do you trigger this camera? Because you can't be there in the middle of the night waiting for a fox to show up. And then not right. only that, you got to figure out lighting. How am I going to make it look so that it's not like this great big bright flash in this ugly image? It has, a, has to be an aesthetically pleasing image. So there's hours and hours and hours. So once you get your portfolio built to where you feel like you've got everything to tell that story, there's still more images to get. And those ones, the ones that are hanging way out on the edges, are those are years in the making. Yeah. It was already nine nine years before I got one bringing a bird back into the, or eight years, excuse me, 
back into a den and, and getting it passed off to the kits. You know, that was a, a fantastic moment for me. But then you just move on to the next thing. So well, you move on humor. to... I love What's your humor that? around that. When you posted it on Instagram a year or two ago, you said something about, you can look at this two ways. It either took eight years to get or one yeah. five hundredth of a second. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Something along those lines. Yeah. It was a good way yep. to point it out. It's a lot of patience. But, yeah, the portfolios will continue to become more and more polished the more time you spend collecting images on, on your favorite animals, your favorite birds, your favorite species, and at builds, and they only get better. The opportunities in different lighting even portraits, you know, will get better with time. Well, and your por your portfolio evolves, right? Because what you think was a great picture four years ago, now you look at it and you're like, man, I've just, I've got way better light or I've got way better behavior or I've got way better portrait, you know, poses. And so what was once that coveted image is no longer, it's, now it's at the bottom of the stack or it's on an old hard drive because you just constantly, you know, you're never not, thinking about that portfolio for that image and a better way to, or how are you going to improve that? And you can do it all the time. It, it just, yeah. with what we shoot, you can constantly improve that portfolio. And if you're that guy for that, or the gal for that species, it'll, it'll be known, but it's years in the making. It's not something you're going to do in a year. No, absolutely. With even, even with whitetails. I mean, that's probably, I mean, even with the, whitetails, well, what do you I mean? There's more whitetails <laughs> spread out. No, they're spread they out away, across the U.S. They they're, ubiquitous. they're ubiquitous, Mark. Yeah, they're ubiquitous. Yeah. They're everywhere, yeah. but you don't see them. Exactly. <laughs> but you have more chances. Right. And it's just so, I mean, you just can't do it. And then speaking to what you were talking about, Mark, if you're going to do whitetails correctly, you can start at home, but you're going to want to show the difference between a coos deer and an Alberta whitetail. Just the size in those two animals are, you know, astonishing. I'm not sure about the size, but like the Florida whitetails, you know, the right. size on those guys. Mm, tiny. I think they're about the same size in the desert down in Arizona and Mexico. And yeah. they're just itty bitty little I, deer. Here's a question. So you've built your portfolio on whitetails, Mark. Mike, you built yours in the elk. What is the pinnacle image for each of you guys, for those species? I can't do it. I'd love to be able to do it. I get asked that all the time, and I I can't pick a favorite because after shooting them for, t filming them for 25 years, there are 25 favorite images or, or stories or experiences because the seasonality is so different. The behavior in the ruts so different. I can't, I can't pick one as much as I'd love to for the sake of storytelling. I would like to. I would have to sit down and say, here are my, here are my favorites. Now, that's where the books are so great. I mean, the first book that I did on whitetails, I think I might have used one or two of those pictures in my second book because things had evolved so much. The quality of the imagery from, from slides to digital had evolved so much. And then... The, my portfolio had expanded on the species that much. When I did my first book on white-tailed deer in 1999, like I said, I had just collected enough images to do it well. But as I kept shooting, filming whitetails for the next 15 years, kind of thing before my second book on deer, that portfolio had filled out. And there were so many unique images that 
came to term that I was able to include. So I don't Michael maybe have a, a specific story. No, there. I think it's the same thing. I mean, there's a few iconic images that stand out in your mind and that for elk would be, you know, anytime I can catch them up above timberline and they're just nothing but just monster mountains and blue sky, that's pretty spectacular. But, you know, I've got them like you were talking about earlier with moose when you get them shedding and you get that 24 hour period where you capture that. That's pretty cool. When you get a fight, that is pretty spectacular. I don't know. You know, if you could base it off of sales, I could probably find one image that sold more than anything else. But, mm-hmm. geez, that's a hard one. And I think it does. It. I, I think that question would be easier to answer back in the slide days than it is in the digital days, right? For sure. Yeah. You just have so much more material nowadays. Back then, you would have 36 chances to capture one image that hopefully was in focus. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, I think sure. the second book I did on whitetails, I think it has 160 images in it or something. It was so hard to whittle it down to that with digital, you know, just picking the favorite ones that told the story in the best way visually and with the most diverse collection. But it's hard. If somebody says, you know, even for like a website where you might put up a slideshow for lack of better terminology, what's a modern way to say slideshow? On a website, if you're going PowerPoint. to do a, a PowerPoint to start the to start your website, your opening opening home page. If you're going to pick twelve images, you're not going to do that in five minutes. Nowadays, you've got. I mean, it, it's there's so much to think about. So it's hard. It's it's a fun challenge to pick your best work. Well, yeah, and I think absolutely. on that line, a lot of times my favorite image is not the most popular image. You know, and so I found myself querying, you know, 10 or 20 close friends to, you know, I'll put up a gallery online and I'll say, can you just choose your top five out of these images? And it is never what I like. But a lot of times it's how hard I worked on getting an image or I I don't know. There's just so many more stories for me in these images than it is for someone just all they're exposed to is that one image they're looking on on a piece of paper or on a screen or whatever that's and a lot of times you have to go down that road because someone reading a book or looking at a book or looking at a film or looking at a whatever you produce you want to have something that appeals to the masses not just your own little personal story behind that image that made it that image for you mm-hmm. what about you ron what is that one image for you i mean if i i would think you have something um, within the swift fox realm I've got, yeah, I've got a few that, several that I really like, but one that is probably my favorite is uh, there were five fox, two kits playing on what would be the the right side of the image, and then the uh, an adult and two other kits playing on the left side of the image, and most people think I, it's a composite because it's just so perfect. They're all in the same exact focal plane. Everything's everything's tack sharp all all five of them you know it was a nasty stormy night and the storm had passed them so the sky behind them was interesting and it just it just kind of sums up the fun and the unique atmosphere that's around a den site or that can be around a den site and how fun it is just to experience for me that's that's one of my favorites and one of the landowners that always let me on and he was he was a guy that would go out and just sit and watch him for hours. And if you know ranchers, they're always working, always messing around with something. 
So he'd go do that all morning, and then all afternoon he'd just sit and watch Swift Fox. He was one of my favorite guys, and he passed away two years ago now, I guess. But that image is still in his living room. I was able to get that printed for him and have it on his wall for him for letting me go out there all the time. Uh, just a great family, and that kind of epitomizes what that opportunity meant for me, I guess. That's smart to do, to give back to landowners that way. Oh, yeah. those They've been great to me. They, In fact, the same family that called me about this other this other bunch of fox to go out and watch in the snow. So we encourage all of our listeners to find their passion, to find their species of choice and to start building a portfolio if you're not already. And something we'll do, let's let's put up uh, in the show notes a collection of our favorites for each of these species to show the story along the way. Yeah, for website. sure. We need to do that. And that's the beautiful thing about mm-hmm. what we can do is we can show this work. It's hard when you're listening to a podcast to to get the full essence of a description, but tune into the website and or even on instagram we can throw that up there missy can do a story with three or four images from each of us and it just cycles through and maybe we put a little description as to why it was so cool i'm glad you brought that up i meant to earlier missy has been killing it on our instagram stories i mean she's been killing me on her instagram She is doing a fabulous job of just creating such dynamic stories with graphics and, and voting options and tell us, answer questions. I mean, really, I'm, I'm blown away. And, and the humor behind the scenes for some of us. Well. <laughs> so check it's funnier, it out. It's funnier for some than others. <laughs> <laughs> so check yeah, but you just give us such her. good content, Ron. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I do. The sneaky, the sneaky <laughs> shot's still one of my favorites. That'll have to come up again because as we were talking about pre-podcast, stories are only up for 24 hours. So you have to check a wild and exposed Instagram feed every day to see the two or three or four stories that Missy's putting up because they vanish. But that's one that'll have to come up monthly. For sure. <laughs> Ron's about to shut up his, his Skype. <laughs> and go get a donut. No, donut free. <laughs> so go to our website at wildandexposed.com. Look at this week's show notes, and we will do our best to follow up on Ron's question as to some of the highlights of building these species-specific portfolios. And I can't pick one, but I'll put up 10 of my favorite whitetails over the past 25 years, and I'm sure the guys will do similar for their species. You can also find us on Facebook and, of course, on our YouTube channel at Wild and Exposed Podcast. And no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on or on YouTube, make sure to hit that subscribe or follow button and to give us a positive review, the five-star rating or the thumbs up on YouTube, as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis. Also on YouTube, hit that bell that notification icon that's there as well so that you will be notified in a friendly way when we upload new content on YouTube. And same thing on podcast apps. Make sure to subscribe so you're up to date each week as these audio podcasts are launched. I want to say a special thank you to Missy McKenzie, our producer, for all of her hard work behind the scenes to create this show for your listening enjoyment. Until next time... You've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.